0: Our reading for today is from the first epistle of John, chapter 3, verses 11 through 24. Listen now to the word of the Lord. For this is the message that you have heard from the beginning, that we should love one another. We should not be like Cain, who was of the evil one, and murdered his brother. And why did he murder him? Because his own deeds were evil and his brothers righteous. Do not be surprised, brothers, that the world hates you. We know that we have passed out of death into life because we love the brothers. Whoever does not love abides in death. Everyone who hates his brother is a murderer, and you know that no murderer has eternal life abiding in him. By this we know love, that he had laid down his life for us, and we ought to lay down our lives for the brothers. But if anyone has the words goods and sees his brother in need, yet closes his heart against him, how does God's love abide in him? Little children, let us not love in word or talk, but in deed and in truth. By this we shall know that we are of the truth, and reassure our heart before him. For whenever our heart condemns us, God is greater than our heart, and he knows everything. Beloved, if our heart does not condemn us, we have confidence before God. And whatever we ask, we receive from him, because we keep his commandments and do what pleases him. And this is his commandment that we believe in the name of his Son, Jesus Christ, and love one another, just as he commanded us. Whoever keeps his commandments abides in God, and God in him. And by this we know that he abides in us, by the Spirit whom he has given us. The word of the Lord.
1: Lord be with you. Uh, Before I begin, I want to make two uh, announcements. Just, well, not announcements, two comments, I guess. Uh, One is, I know that um, some of you uh, may be concerned about uh, the spread of the coronavirus. Uh, I know it's in the news quite a bit. And so I want to uh, let you know, uh, first of all, that our session and staff, we are um, having further discussions about uh, any uh, changes or adjustments that we might need to make uh, as a community. So that is an ongoing conversation. Uh, I understand that uh, some of you have fear and uh, heightened anxiety, um, but I also want to uh, encourage you not to be overcome by a spirit of fear and unwarranted panic. Uh, I know that many of the uh, churches around us uh, are canceling meetings. I know churches and uh, perhaps in your businesses and workplaces uh, they're uh, cancelling trips uh, telling you not to shake hands doing you know elbow bumps and fist bumps and things like that and as I said we're going to continue to monitor the situation and adjust as uh, warrants Uh, I would encourage you now as always to follow whatever medical advice uh, you trust things like washing your hands right Um, please stay home uh, if you're sick if your kids are sick I mean this is just what we would do uh, normally and so I encourage you to continue to do that uh, for myself I want you to know uh, I am going to continue to shake your hands and to <laughs> hug a few of you um, if you don't want me to shake your hand and you just just give me a fist or an elbow I'm, I'm okay with that but I want you to know that um, we should we should shake hands for as long as we can because who knows maybe we can't do it anymore <laughs> in a few weeks so um, that's where I am all right Uh, The next thing I want to mention is, uh, again, I want to encourage you to stick around uh, after church for lunch and to join us for our study of the Lord's Supper in our Lenten FGs. Uh, And so, again, um, I hope it's a a time that you can commit to uh, just an extra 45 minutes, an hour each Sunday. Uh, We're going to continue to study the Lord's Prayer uh, with our families, with our children. And again, to try to instill a sense of what Lent is for everyone so that the children as well as adults, we understand that this is a time of of reflection, of prayer. And uh, I I think it's been really, last week was I thought was terrific. And I just want to share a few pictures with you from uh, last week. So last week, uh, we invited all of you to draw something of how you address God. And I saw all the pictures that were made. And I found them really just interesting. And so I thought I just want to highlight a few that I enjoyed. Um, many of you begin your prayers, apparently, with dear God. And this is a, this is a, pre- a good example next. And uh, I like this one because it's dear dad. And um, I thought, yeah, that, that's great to be able to approach God that way. Uh, here's one, again, dear God, with a, with a heart on a cross. I thought that was good. And uh, many of you just simply went with Lord. Lord. And here's one. Here's a more fancy lord. Some of you are more artistically inclined. Um, others of you chose the word king. Um, or heavenly father was also popular. And here's an unusual one, I am. That's, that's true. Um, many of you had rainbows. And I, I wasn't quite sure what that connection was, but I noticed many of the pictures had uh, a rainbow. And then others of you drew sort of like a, like a story. Like I'm not quite sure all of this um but some there's some sort of story going on in this one and this one too there's some sort of story being told although i'm not quite sure what that is um here's one where this is how you pray in bed and so i thought yeah that's a lot of us a lot of us do that and then uh here's a much fancier way of showing that yes putting the rest of us to shame uh, I like this one, too. You got the, the Lord is my shepherd, I think, going on there. Uh, I thought that was nice. Others of you, again, just you know, just showing off your skills and making the rest of us feel bad. Um, I like this one because I have no idea what it means, but I thought, you know, it's, it's colorful. It's powerful. I thought that was good. Um, others of you here then you just sort of tried to explain the process of prayer, and I thought, oh, okay, so there's you know, something going up and down. Um, next one and here's another one I'm not quite sure exactly but there's some sort and I like the heh <laughs> at the bottom uh, so there's something going on there here's another one again very kind of you know something going up to heaven and there, there's this process being explained as to what prayer is um, and again here's another one just a heavenly father um, here's another fancy one I like this one because <laughs> this is what I would have probably done you know uh, given my lack of uh, artistic skills and then this was I, this, I think this was probably my favorite of the ones I don't know who did this one but I, I just I just liked it it's uh, you know simple but yeah so uh, that's what we did last week uh, we're not going to be doing that this week but uh, we'll have another uh, activity together that I think you will uh, enjoy and hopefully uh, help you to uh, to pray better to understand the prayers uh, better and so that we can uh, again uh, pray together alright uh, let's pray together Father, we thank you again for this day, uh, this day that you have made, and uh, we are thankful for the invitation uh, to enter into communion with you, to have fellowship with you, to claim our position as your children in your family. And so now as we gather, as we listen to your word, as we listen for your word, open our hearts, our minds so that we may receive all that you have for us, and in the hearing, help us to obey. We ask in Christ's name. Amen. So this is now the sixth uh, in a series of sermons I'm preaching on the letters of John. And just to remind you, John has been telling us that we have known from the beginning that Jesus Christ is the eternal Word of God made flesh. And in the first half of the letter, he has shown us, because of this, uh, this this beginning, message that we have heard from the beginning is that God is light, and John's purpose for writing is to proclaim this truth so that we may have fellowship with God and with one another, so that our joy might be made complete, so that we may not sin. And in the second chapter, he offered us these three assurances of how we know that we know this God. That is, if we keep his commandments, that if we love one another, and that if we confess that Jesus is the Christ. And last week, uh, we were assured and reassured that we are the children of God and that we are being fully formed into the likeness of Jesus Christ. And so now this sort of second section begins with the same words in the first section. This is a message that we have heard from the beginning, that we should love one another, So, you know, John is not making one sort of long, uh, compact, linear argument. He's just returning to the same themes and uh, over and over he's going to uh, tell us the things that he's been telling us from the beginning. And so he remains on this theme of love and repeats uh, what he said earlier. Love, he says, is a sign that we have passed from death into life. Last week, we were assured that we are the children of God, and now he's going to give us a further assurance, a further reassurance that if we love one another, we can have the confidence that we are indeed the children of God. And so John now gives us this dramatic contrast to illustrate between Cain and Christ. If you need a negative example of what it is to love your brother, Cain is probably the first name that you would think of. John calls him of the evil one, meaning that he is of the devil, that he's a child of the devil, because the devil is a liar and is a murderer from the beginning, and so what Cain does is what the children of a murderer do, that is, he also murders. In the book of Genesis, the motivations of Cain for killing his brother are not clearly spelled out, but Cain was a very popular subject of speculation in Jewish literature. Uh, Among ancient Jews, the mention of Cain would elicit the kind of response that would elicit a name like Hitler or um, Osama bin bin (laughs) bin Laden. Uh, Those kinds of names that would sort of, um, the kind of emotions and thoughts that those names would conjure up in us, that's the impact that a name like Cain would conjure up Uh, for them and so when you think of Cain it's like oh yeah that's he's of the evil one in contrast in in absolute contrast uh, to that of the children of God and as you see now uh, repeatedly throughout the letter John always presents for us very very simple choices you are either (laughs) you either uh, you either love and have life, or you hate and are a murderer. That's it. Those are the the two choices. There's nothing in between. And so he connects hate with murder, which may seem harsh, but it's really what Jesus said, right? In Matthew 5, in the Sermon on the Mount, Jesus said, you've heard that it was said, you shall not murder, and whoever murders shall be liable to the judgment. But I say to you that whoever is angry with his brother will be liable to judgment. And whoever insults his brother will be liable to the council. And whoever says you fool will be liable to the hell of fire. Right? So Jesus actually made it more challenging. It's not even if you hate, if you just get angry or insult a brother or a sister, you're a murderer. Right? And so for that, we're, we're all guilty of that. And so John says in contrast to that, this hate and murder that characterizes Cain and the children of the devil, there is the love of Christ, and he says, and here's how we know what love is. Here is how we know what love is. He's been talking about love, and now he says, this is what love is. This is how you know love. Jesus laid down his life for us. This is love. Jesus laid down his life for us. This is how we know love. This is how we know love. Here is the supreme example of love, and this is the supreme example of love that is to be imitated by the children of God. John says, We also ought to lay down our lives for one another. Uh, I'm not sure how many of you uh, saw this, but back in February during the Super Bowl, between the first and second quarters of the game, uh, between mouthfuls of chicken and waffles, my eyes caught a commercial um, because it talked about the Greek words for love. I don't know if any of you caught the commercial. Uh, can we show that clip? Words for love. The first is philia.
0: Philia is affection that grows from friendship. Next, there's storge, The kind you have you're your grandmother. Third, there's arrows, the uncontrollable urge to say, I love you. The fourth kind of love is different, it's the most admirable. It's called agape, love as an action. It takes courage, sacrifice, strength. For a husband, okay, pounds, let's
1: thank you. Um, The rest of the, you know, it's terrible. (laughs) Um, Now, you know, I was, I don't know, it's it's the last thing I expected to see uh, during the Super Bowl is a a word study on Greek. So I thought, oh, that's terrific. You know, it's not bad, at least up to there. Um, They're right about agape, is a different kind of love. It is the most admirable, as the commercial says. It is love as an action. It does take courage and sacrifice and strength. Uh, in a world where love is usually defined as a particular way of feeling, this is not bad. Uh, the problem with this commercial uh, is that it makes this love, this agape love, um, simply a higher human virtue, something that you generate, a higher kind of love for humanity that you might commit yourself to out of the power of your own strength. But that is not the case. That is not the way we understand. That is not the Christian understanding of what agape love is. It is not something that you generate. It's not something that you are capable of producing on your own. John says, here's what it looks like. It's Jesus who laid down his life for others. It's the unmerited love of God for us through the cross that makes us the children of God. This is agape love. This is agape love. And I think it's important here that John tells us that this is what love is. And then he says we ought to imitate this. But then he goes right into a very practical illustration because he knows that most of us are not going to have this kind of opportunity or, uh, yeah, most of us are not going to have to die for someone else. Now, it could be that you're in a situation you know, where you have to rescue someone from drowning or some, some, some dramatic thing, perhaps a soldier who lays down his life for his fellow soldiers. There may be a situation like that for some of us, but for the vast majority of us, that kind of um, moment is not going to come. And, and I think John knows that. So he says, we ought to lay down our lives for one another. And then he's very clear, like, I don't mean we're all going to die. Because he goes on and says, this is what it means for us to lay down our lives. He says, uh, verse 17 if anyone has the world's goods and sees his brother in need, yet closes his heart against him, how does the love of God abide in him? Little children, let us not love in word or talk, but in deed and in truth. Right? So laying down our lives in love for one another isn't about dying. Now It can mean that, but that's not what he's talking about here. What it means to lay down our lives for our brothers and sisters in love here he's saying it's when you see someone who's in need and you've got stuff to help that person you got to help that person that's what it is to lay down in your life that's love right that's that's very practical it's very pragmatic right one translation put it this way my little ones let's not talk about love let's not sing about love Let's put love into action and make it real. Some people say it's the thought that counts. I think John would say, no, not really. Especially if you have the thought and you have the resources, but you don't put those resources into action to those who need it. If you don't translate your thoughts into some meaningful, useful, beneficial action, he would say, the love of God is not in you. It's a defective faith. It's a defective love if it is not translated into action. It's a simple matter of sharing what you have to give to those who are in need. And we all have stuff. We all have extra stuff. Whether it's money, whether it's time, whether it's skills, if anyone has the world's goods, that is the riches, materials, wealth, resources, and sees his brother and yet closes his heart against him. Um, you know, to close the heart, literally it says to shut your intestines. Uh, the way I learned it in the King James version is who, whosoever shutteth up his bowels of compassion from him. Uh, the ancients understood the, the bowels, your guts, to be the seat of emotion. So if you close that off, right, we would say that to, to close your heart, to shut your heart, um, to slam the door of your compassion, as, as someone put it. That means you do not have the love of God. You are not laying down your life. That's the way John is trying to explain to us what it is, what love is, and what it is to have the love of God in us, and what laying down our lives actually looks like. Let us not love in word or talk, but in deed and in truth. Love, as I've said many, many times now, it's a decision of the will. It is an action towards someone's good, not a feeling that I feel. I was reminded this week of a a book by uh, Walter Trobisch entitled, I Love the Girl, uh, it's an interesting book because uh, it's it's a collection of letters between a pastor and, um, and a young man who's going s- through some struggle. So th- this young man uh, who had been baptized by Trobish, who had been taught by Trobish, uh, wrote him a letter because um, he had been involved um, in an affair with one of his students as a teacher. And so he had uh, been fired from his job. The church had... Um, um, would not allow him to take part in communion uh, for a period of time. And so he wrote to his former pastor um, explaining his situation and asking for advice and guidance and and so on. And so uh, the title of the book, I Love the Girl, comes from a phrase in the first letter the young man wrote to the pastor. And this is the way Trobisch uh, responded to that first letter. He wrote, one phrase in your letter struck me especially. You wrote, I love the girl. No, my friend, you did not love that girl. You went to bed with her. These are two completely different things. You had a sexual episode, but what love is, you did not experience. It's true, you can say to a girl, I love you. But what you really mean is something like this. I want something. Not you, but something from you. This is the opposite of love, for love wants to give. Love seeks to make the other happy and not himself. Love wants to give. Love seeks to make the other one happy. Love is action that is thinking about what is best for the other. When we do this, then we know that we are of the truth and that we are loving. Again, as you've been hearing every week, John in this letter is trying to reassure you that you can know that you are abiding in God, that you are walking in the light, that you have fellowship with the Father and the Son, that you are forgiven, and that you are a child of God and have eternal life. But it may be, that despite these repeated reassurances, some of you may still be lacking confidence. You may still be doubting about your position before God as a child of God because your conscience keeps telling you that you are a sinner and that your repeated failures to consistently live up to God's standards and commandments and even to your own expectations of yourself indicate to you that maybe you are not a child of God. You judge and you condemn yourself because you hold yourself to a very high and impossible standard. And it's interesting here because John, the word that he uses for condemnation is a composite meaning to know against myself. In other words, this is self-condemnation, not some objective judgment that might be made, but it is a self-condemning. And I know that some of you are more spiritually sensitive, some of you have uh, perfectionist tendencies, some of you tend to be more um, introverted and self-reflective about your faith, and so those kinds of folks, you know, you you tend to be more judgmental and you tend to be uh, harsher on yourself and others. (laughs) There is a godly sorrow that leads to repentance, that leads to forgiveness and restoration of fellowship, But there is also a kind of ungodly sorrow, a worldly sorrow that leads to further misery and depression and self-justification and more guilt. In my experience, you know self-condemnation and doubt and uncertainty um, plague those who take their faith seriously. <laughs> That's the paradox. The conscience of those who uh, don't care as much about their faith, who are less diligent about their faith, uh, it it doesn't bother them. They tend to err on the side of presumption, and they don't take the call to discipleship and holiness and sanctification as seriously. And so they think everything is okay. But those who really want to know God, those who are really being diligent about the faith— Those who who really want to have assurance, uh, again, just paradoxically, it's it's those folks who seem to suffer the most about having that assurance. It's those who want to know God more deeply uh, get plagued with doubts. And so John is writing for you. This letter is for you. This letter is for those who are in Christ and those who need assurance because of whatever doubts you may be having. He says, you can have confidence even if your conscience, even if your own heart self-condemns you, accuses you. You can have confidence that God is greater than your own sense of condemnation. And remember, your own conscience is not infallible. To have confidence, it means to speak your mind freely, without fear and without shame and John says you can have this confidence because God is greater than your heart, greater than your self-condemnation and God knows everything. Now, I don't want you to misunderstand this because some people hear oh God knows everything and, you know, that's a frightening sentence for some folks. It is not meant to frighten you. You may think, wow, you know, God knows all my secrets, he knows all my sinful thoughts. So I'm, I'm really in trouble here. How is this supposed to help me? And some have read it that way. Uh, St. Augustine, for example, he preached on this text and he said, you hide your heart from other human beings. Hide it from God if you can. I mean, that's, a, that's, that's terrifying, right? But as Luther and as others have uh, rightly understood this text in the context of the letter and what John is doing here, it's meant to be a word of comfort. I think it was Luther who said something like, if if conscience is one drop, then God's reconciliation in Christ for us is an ocean. That's the knowledge that God has of us. God knows everything. He knows your hearts, not just the sins that you may be harboring, that you may be magnifying in your mind at the moment, but God also knows your ongoing longings and desire for him. Your awareness of your sins, that That also points your desire for God. God knows of your past actions in which you loved, which you may have forgotten, maybe deeds of love which you are not even aware of anymore. Your penitence, impure and as incomplete as they may be, God knows all of it. And it doesn't mean that God knows everything, and so He's going to balance, you know, your good parts versus the bad parts. And so, you know, maybe you got more good, so it's, it's okay. That's not what He's talking about here. Rather, that God knows everything, including that you are His child, that you are forgiven in Him. He knows this too, and it gives God sympathy for us in our struggles. He understands our weaknesses, and He forgives. As a father forgives. Rudolf uh, Schneckenberg, um, a biblical scholar, said this When Christians are condemned by their conscience, they not only recall that God knows their deeds of love, they hurl themselves into the ocean of the infinite understanding and mercy of God. God's all knowing is a mercy. Even when you would condemn yourself, God's grace is far greater than your sin. God's mercy is far greater, far greater than your ability to understand it, far greater than your own sense of sin. And so John says, instead of fear, you can have confidence. You can have confidence. Not a a, a flippant or a presumptive kind of confidence that leads you to laziness, hey, it doesn't matter, I can do whatever, but a confidence, a confidence that leads you to a deeper pursuit of holiness, to humbler works of righteousness and love. And he says to pray with confidence, right? To have this confidence so that we can pray knowing that whatever we ask, we receive from him. That's the confidence that he calls us to. Now, I don't want you to uh, take this phrase out of context because sometimes people read something like, you know, whatever we ask, we receive from him. And they think, oh, this is, you know, is, it's a blank check. I can ask for whatever I want and get whatever I want. You know that's not the case. That's not our experience. What John is saying here, rather, is if you're walking with God, if you have fellowship with God, and you pray in accordance with His will for His glory, yes, God will answer accordingly. It's the prayer we pray every week when we ask, God, Hallowed be thy name, thy kingdom come, thy will be done. Those are prayers that we pray in accordance with God, God's will, and they are answered. They are given because we are abiding in him, because we are keeping his commandments, and we are doing what pleases God. John closes this chapter with a reminder of God's one commandment. And I want you to notice here that this is a singular commandment. He says, this is the commandment, not the commandments. He's been talking about commandments, right? He's been saying, you know, we have to obey his commandments. We have to love one another. And, right? He's been, there's been several things. But he says here, there is this one commandment, and that is this. We believe in the name of his son, Jesus Christ, and love one another. It's actually two things, but he calls it one. I think this is John's commentary on what Jesus said when Jesus was asked, what is the greatest commandment? Remember, Jesus says, the greatest, the most important commandment is to love the Lord your God with everything. And, and then he added, love your neighbor as yourself. Right? It's sort of, it's the one commandment, but it's got two parts. John is essentially saying here now, to love God, as Jesus said, is to believe in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ. How do we love? It is to believe in Jesus. And it's the one command. You cannot separate believing in Jesus Christ and loving your neighbors. And this separation, I think, is the cause of the disunity in the Christian church for many, many years. And we're seeing it again today. Um, during the uh, election cycle uh, back in 2012, uh, CNN posed a quiz on their website entitled, Do You Believe in a Red State Jesus or a Blue State Jesus? It's a quiz you can take uh, again today. And the quiz poses a series of either-or questions, and based on your answers, in case you didn't know already, Uh, It will tell you whether you lean toward a red state Jesus or a blue state Jesus. For example, do you think of Jesus primarily as the Lamb of God who takes away the sins of the world? Or as the champion of the oppressed? How many Lamb of God people do we have? Champion of the oppressed. And most of you just like, don't (laughs) want to answer, okay. Okay. Right, because you don't want to get judged, right? Because, hey, I don't want this red people to think I'm blue or vice versa. Is Jesus the Jesus of the left-behind series Jesus? Or is Jesus the more never-left-and-is-with-us Jesus? Is Jesus the prophetic Jesus telling us about the future? Or is he the prophet Jesus speaking to power and truth? Is Jesus the savior of the world who takes away my sins? Or is Jesus primarily an example that I must follow? John 3.16 or Matthew 25? Is Jesus an exorcist or a therapist? Do you believe in the resurrected Jesus, the risen Christ, or the symbolic Jesus? And so you can pick one or the other and it will tell you basically whether you're a Republican or a Democrat, (laughs) right? This kind of division, it's been going on forever. And in this country, you know, the division line falls along political lines between conservative Republicans and liberal Democrats, between evangelical conservative churches and mainline progressive churches. And the stereotypical dividing line is that The conservatives, the conservative uh, Christians emphasize Jesus is the Christ. Jesus is the savior of the world. And the liberals or the progressives, their emphasis is love your neighbors, love your brothers, do good, and make the kingdom of God a reality in the world today. John is telling us that is a false choice to make. You don't have to pick Either or. It's both and. It's the one command. Believe in Jesus Christ and love one another. This is the commandment. This is the one commandment that we have. There is no separation between loving God and loving our neighbors. To take one out it's a defective faith. It's a defective love. So, so while I think we have to be respectful toward others, other religions and systems that call for and stress compassion toward humanity. And while we should support NGOs and social agencies that provide food and feed the hungry and clothe the naked, that is not enough for us. The church is not simply another social welfare agency. As the children of God, we do that, yes, but we must also confess that Jesus is the Christ. There can be no separation on this. The Venerable Bede said back in the 8th century, for those of us who claim to be Christians, he said this, in truth, it is impossible to love one another in the right way if we do not have faith in Christ. Just as it is impossible to believe in the name of Christ if we do not love one another. And isn't this what we're trying to do together? Don't we want to know Jesus ever more deeply? And don't we want to grow in love for one another? It's not one or the other. This is why we come together to worship and to pray. And, while, and we also send meals to those who are sick and monies to missionaries overseas. It's not one or the other. It's the one commandment. This is why, you know, when you, when you uh, entrust your 8th graders to me for confirmation class, I have them memorize the Nicene Creed. And we try to send them on a mission trip. It's not one or the other. There is no distinction between believing in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ, the Son of God, and loving our neighbors. They are mutually inclusive. And as we do this, John says, our confidence will grow. Our reassurance will grow. Because doing this means that we are abiding in God. Brothers and sisters, believe in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ, the Son of God, and love one another. Let's pray. God, help us to believe in Jesus and love one another, so that we may know, so that we may know and have the confidence that we are abiding in you, that we are your children, and that we have eternal life. This we ask in Jesus' name. Amen.